0: This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application.
1: With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es Working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience, so don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode sixty eight of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Alando Brewington.
0: Hello from North Carolina.
1: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh it's just us this week.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. That that means that we're we're both like twice as important, right? Yeah, I'll definitely speak a lot more than I have in the past episodes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but but it's good. And I'm really curious to see what your experience is. We were talking before the show and we decided to talk about team dynamics and, you know, working on different projects. And it sounds like you've worked on a wide variety of projects for a wide variety of clients and and employers. And I'm kind of in the same boat and kind of been figuring out some of the things that work for me and don't work for me. And so I'm really curious to see see what you have to share.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been a really good experience. Uh, immediately when I left basic contracting, I was doing like a long-term contract for a government organization and got into mobile development. My first iOS project back in 2010, uh, was a contract for a company for a, a healthcare app. And there were four devs and I'd gone from that to several that I'll talk about and back and forth between formal companies and independent contracting and and projects like that. So there are a lot of things to be that are different depending on the type of project and the size of the team that I think is important to be aware of. And there are reasons why everyone doesn't fit, like particular people, you'll see people come through an organization, say a, a company, and they don't they stay or a situation where someone says, oh, I'd like to be independent, and they're not really prepared for the dynamic change. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important to be prepared and, and aware of those things.
1: Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, with your experience as a, a freelancer or you know, contract developer, um, what kind of projects were you working on?
0: Well, the first one, the first couple actually were in healthcare and it was just a byproduct of the relationships that I had. I had a friend, a really good friend of mine who's who's an iOS developer who called me up one day when I was still doing Windows development and he says, hey, would you like to start working on some um, iOS stuff? And I had worked on a free, an open source project for a mini conference and that's how I got on the radar and I said, sure. And so the initial projects were for... Uh, these healthcare companies, they were just outsourcing their iOS development. They didn't have in-house talent. And they decided that, you know, rather than hire some developers, they would just have this project that they would just build. We would give them the code and we would move on. So moving into that arena, that first experience, it was it was a lot of freedom and a lot of leeway. So the client didn't have expertise in the area. We did. Um, But we didn't have domain expertise. So that was the relationship. They provided the domain expertise to tell us the things that they needed the app to do, the rules, and we would make it happen. But it gave us the flexibility to make the kinds of suggestions about what an app should do and how an app should behave and even to some degree how an app should look within limitations that you don't always get. Yeah, that makes sense. So was it just you or were you working with a few other folks? The original project was a team of four. Uh, there were four of us that would just meet up in a co-work space, which is one of the reasons why I have I love co-working. And we would occasionally go to client sites for meetings and or demos. But most of the time, we shipped that code across the wire. And we did most of our project management remotely. And it was a great relationship because it allowed our team to have its own personality. You hear a lot of times about Skunk Works projects and companies where they sort of let Employees go off and do their own thing, and they're not really tied to the the company culture, so they have the freedom to explore and That's what it really felt like. We were independent um we were solely working on this project, but we were fully funded and supported by this client, so it gave us the foundation of not having to worry about you know finances or anything like that, but and while having the freedom to really make the best application that we could that makes sense
1: I'm kind of curious. do you think it made a difference
0: that you were all in the same place? I believe so initially. I think one of the things, and I've seen this several times, that it really is important for team building. There's this this concept of sort of storming and norming and forming. And I know that's not in the right order. I think it's forming, forming, storming and norming for building a team. And the initial weeks that we spent together to build a rapport and get to know each other, because I didn't know two of the devs. And one of the devs and I were really good friends. We've known each other for years. But the working together is the important part. It's one thing to have friends and to have colleagues that you see and you know. It's quite another thing to work with them and to understand the different work styles and the way that people like to code and how people will respond to criticism and discussions about particular directions or code reviews. So it's really, really important, I think. Um, later in my career, uh, a couple of years later, I took a Full-time job and became a full-time employee with a company that became a remote, but I spent the first three months working on-site with the other devs. And again, I think that really helped to build that team cohesion. That being said, I'm not suggesting that you have to do a you know long-term, on-site, all-body, all hands-on-deck sort of development process, but I think if you can at least get one or two weeks where you can really start to build a per- interpersonal relationship with your team members, it goes a long way to helping defuse a lot of things that could be misunderstood later.
1: So uh, the last couple of contracts that I worked for more than, you know, little help here, little help there, because I, I do a little bit of that too with, with things like Redmine and Instructure Canvas, you know, which are open source projects. And so, you know, I just help people get them set up or figure out why it's not working for them. But with a lot of these other... I I took two contracts where I was just part of a contracted team, a remote team. And in the first case, they were actually... uh, They had part of the team on site, and then they had contractors all over the place that were working with them on stuff. And just, you know, it it was kind of hard to really break into it. The other problem was that with their particular app was that they had... So this was a web app in this case, and they had um, actually broken it up into multiple parts. So they had a service-oriented architecture, Mm -hmm. and each of the services had been built by a different consultancy. Oh. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing was just a complete mess. So figuring out and onboarding was really hard, especially remote, where I couldn't just sit down with somebody. Now, I spent a lot of time on Screen Hero and Skype you know, doing that kind of thing with them, you know, to try and get on board. But it was really hard to get engaged in the project. And then I kind of need to engage in order to really want to work it. And so uh, that made it really hard. And the other one was, it was a similar thing. The, the team was much more cohesive and they were all remote from all over the place. And at the same time, you know, again, it was just really hard to engage because, There was so much to know, and everybody was sprinting ahead trying to get the next release out. And so I think being remote contributed some to that, but I think a lot of it also was just that they never really had a focus on onboarding people.
0: Yeah, that's a critical component. When I joined the company a couple of years ago, that was a big part of the process. And in fact, my role after we did the initial rewrite, there were four of us that did the initial rewrite of the app, and then we started to grow the team and really have some strong opinions on team size when it comes to projects like this or products. But as we started to onboard new developers, I typically would spend one or two weeks paired directly with that new developer just to get them acclimated, not necessarily to development, you know, because many times they weren't junior developers, Mm -hmm. but just to how we worked as a team and sort of to make sure we're adding people and building that cohesion and trust, which I think is really important, particularly if you're working remote. Trust is such a huge factor in being able to depend on people to get things done and giving people the freedom to get things done. And I'm a huge sports fan and I will run, you know, sports tropes into the ground. When talking about that, I'm going to avoid that today for the sake (laughs) of the listeners. But um, it is very, very critical that the organization understand that. So, if any team or organization says, okay, we would like to bring on remote workers or we'd like to transfer to remote workers or just outsource a product, they really need to be cognizant of what is involved in that. And making that decision is not just a cost decision in terms of dollars and cents. There's a communication cost. You've got to make sure that the messaging, as you said before, An example where you've got all of these disparate systems that you try to try to integrate as a part of the onboard process. You have to think about who's going to be available to communicate with the builders on getting these things done. What What are their resources like? Can you allocate? And what does that mean? What does that do to your schedule? What does that do to the morale of the team? It can be very frustrating. I worked for a government organization for a number of years, and I had a similar project where I was trying to tie together the different departments' data. And everyone used a different database on a different platform and they're very protective. So I've got my marching orders and they have theirs and everyone's got different priorities. And sometimes those priorities were conflicting because it's one thing to say, I need this data so I can integrate it into this app. And another person says, well, my higher priority is to secure this data and make sure that this information just doesn't get out to anybody. So what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and who do you go to, to make the final call?
1: Yeah. And, A lot of times it's not really that the communication wires got crossed, but that as soon as that happens, nobody knows where to go to get the answer. And so everybody's just sitting there going, okay, now what? And that's really a problem. So you really do need a solid project manager that can make those calls and that is in touch with the project owner?
0: Yes, and that's the trade-off, right? Because th- this idea of empowerment, right? We, we, we want to be empowered. We want to empower team members to make decisions. But at the same time, someone has to be a decision maker. Someone has to sort of, you know, break the log jam up when it occurs at certain points. And that person has to be the right person in the right position in order to make those calls.
1: Yep, definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about remote teams because I have seen them work and I, I actually run my own. And uh, it works really nicely for me. It just, you really have to focus on communication when you're doing remote stuff.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and and that's where that that I think when you form the team and you establish a rapport with each other is so important that you can depend and you can ask, you know, you can call your teammates and you can say, I need help with something. If if you're blocked on something, if you don't feel that you can or should communicate with your team members, then it's going to cause a lot of problems. It's going to cause stories not to get done on time. And that's just going to be a a chain effect that is just going to trigger a potential derailment of a a project. I will say when it comes to remote work, not everyone is geared for remote work. (laughs) Oh, it's so true. And it sounds enticing and a lot of people like the idea, but you really do have to be a self-directed person because it's so easy to get distracted. There's so many things that can be competing for your attention. I actually have family members that when I travel around, they, they remark on this. It's like you get up and you get dressed and you start your day and you just go downstairs and set up like you're going. somewhere." It's like, I have to do that. It's just part of me mentally getting ready for my work day. And they I had to learn I had to teach as well as learn myself this process because I had to make sure that everyone around me respected my work process and that I am still at work. I'm using air quotes. I can't see. Uh, So so because most people think, especially those who don't work in technology um, who say or not familiar with remote work, they see you physically away from what's deemed a workplace and they don't connect it with doing work. So they say, "Oh, I can just come over," and so then you have the potential for the same interruptions that you have in the office place, where someone just comes by your cubicle and just wants to talk about, you know, I don't know, lost or something. I know I'm way out of date, but <laughs> lost. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really far behind on television. I just started watching Doctor Who not too long ago, so right. oh, good for you. But you do have to make sure you create those boundaries. Boundaries are important. And again, the discipline. And so I think to be a successful remote worker and the team also has to establish rules. I've worked on teams where we've had a set of what we called work hours, core work hours, where everyone's supposed to be online and available. And I've worked on teams where we absolutely don't have any of that. And you work out your own communication schedules with the individuals with whom you need to communicate. And both can work. Yeah.
1: And really what it comes down to is just being able to get responsive, like people are responsive within a timely manner. And that's what the core hours really solves is that they're responsive because you know, they'll be there. As far as setting up your home work environment so that, you know, you're not interrupted all the time. I, I definitely agree with you on the boundaries issue. And I have to protect my boundaries digitally as much as I have to do it physically because, you know, I'm at home. And I have four kids here. And so my two-year-old, he wakes up from his nap. And the first thing he does is try my office door. Okay. And so I, you know, I have to close and lock the door. Most of the time, that's enough. Just having a room with a door that locks when I need it to, you know, that's enough. And my wife keeps the kids out of my hair most of the day so that I can get stuff done. But yeah, I mean, you really have to do be disciplined about that. And it doesn't mean that you can't go downstairs and get involved with your kids kids or with your family or with whoever's around right so if you have visitors or something and you want to spend some time with them that's fine but then you got to make sure that those boundaries go up when you need to go back to
0: work Absolutely, and it can be difficult having to deal with that, uh, as you say, moving back and forth because there's there's always a context switch, you, you know, of mm-hmm. you know taking your mind off of the work. One of the colleagues I work with, he actually was homeschooling his son at, at one point during one of our projects, and so he'd have to structure his day where he could give us, you know, two to three hours on site where we at our co work space. But then he was at the co work space because it also worked well for homeschooling, and so he would spend a couple of hours over there as well. But it required him to sort of set up a schedule. And he let us know. It's like, OK, I'm available here and, and I'm not going to be available at this time. So you can really make it work in a number of ways. But those principles do have to be in place. You do have to have those boundaries. I'm curious about the digital boundaries. I think we talked somewhat about this on a previous show about tools. But when you talk about digital boundaries, speak a little bit about like how you keep those distractions away.
1: So, I mean, most of the distractions are things like email or Twitter. Sometimes it's Skype. Most of the time on Skype, you know, people message me. You know, I can can just let it slide. But, I mean, really what it is is just either turning it off or being able to not give it attention. You know, I have notifications every time I get an email. And so then I have to decide whether or not I want to go and check it out. And so usually what I do is I actually go ahead and take care of email, like, first thing in the morning. So it's out of the way. And then I don't have to do anything with it. For the rest of the day, occasionally something will come in, and I'll you know I'll check on it in the afternoon, and just make sure that nothing important came in. But that's it, you know. I don't I don't reply to those emails after that.
0: Now, one of the challenges I've I've found I've had even even up to this day is chat. We have a team, yeah. we have multiple groups, and it can really be distracting. How do you deal with that?
1: Uh, with chat, it depends, right? So I feel like if I'm reasonably responsive, then that's okay. You know, unless there's like an emergency or something, that some you know, or I'm, somebody doesn't need me because it's holding them up, then a lot of times I'll let them slide. Uh, with the last client that I worked on a team with, they used a, a program called FlowDoc. You can get it at FlowDoc.com. And uh, there were a couple of different nice things about that. One was that, you know, if somebody said your name, you know, then it'd notify you. The other nice thing is that it would actually, if you replied, you could reply within the context of specific conversations, and it color-coded them, so you could see the different conversations that were going on and which ones you wanted to pay attention to. You just click on the, the color speech bubble, and it would just show you those. And so I could just check it really fast if I if somebody said my name. So a lot of times I'd miss large swaths of conversation because I was heads down in the code, and then I'd go back and check it out later. Okay. See if it was important. A lot of times, too, I just turn it off. I just tell them, look, you know, I'm really going to be focusing on this feature. So I'm shutting down FlowDoc and I'm shutting down these other things. If you need to get a hold of me, then this is how you do it. And so I leave one channel open for them to reach out to me if they really needed my help with something. And then, yeah, the rest of the time, you know, I just I just shut it off. Um, But most of the time, it was fairly non-intrusive to keep it open. So unless it was really active and, you know, really distracting, I usually just leave it open.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges I'm having now is I've got to learn to to incorporate some new ways into the tool that we're using to allow me to get pinged when I need, when it's important, but to sort of avoid. Because we have some... Fun channels and some just generic yeah. channels, and it can be very, very distracting. And we've got a Snap Bot running in there that's like someone types a worded t- type, they post a picture or funny, you know, mm-hmm. image or something. And so you really have to be mindful of that and say, okay, I don't have the resources right now to allow that to get in my way.
1: Yeah, and I found that most team members are actually pretty okay with you saying, "Hey, look, I really need to get this done. I really want to focus on it. I'm gonna." you know i'm going to step out of chat for an hour okay and then you know and then you just set a timer and get back in in an hour you know just things like that just make sure you communicate and and really i mean i can't stress this enough i mean communication is really the key it's the key when you're in the same office or room every day and it's the key when you're remote you know you just got to make sure that everybody knows what's going on and where they fit you wind up saving yourselves a whole lot of trouble and effort there uh, where people might you know go and repeat work or they might do something wrong or things like that you know if you're if you 're communicating well and everything is well documented, then you solve a lot of those problems and part of that is the chat thing, and part of that 's like your ticket tracking or whatever you use for that
0: yeah, absolutely I would agree i tell you one thing I would add too is that I find that reaching out and having that communication can also reduce stress. It allows you to not get well i 've been on projects where i 've been on an island and it 's just me. And there is really no one other than the interwebs to try to find the solution to a problem or get a second opinion. Um, But when you have team members and you can communicate with them, you you really do have a sense of comfort knowing that you're not in it alone. And it it, it can help. I find that it helps, especially in problem solving, because I need all of my faculties to put towards actually solving the problem, not spending any cycles. And worry and things like that. It's a waste of time. So communication, you're absolutely right. That would be, I would say, the hallmark of a successful team and successful project.
1: Yeah, and when it comes right down to it, I don't know how much of a fan you are of Agile development. And I'm saying Agile, you know, in the general sense, not the capital A Agile, follow a methodology, you know, be a religious zealot Agile that's really what it's about. It's about communication and solving those problems and it's about finding what works for you. And so every team kind of has to go through that process of figuring out, okay, this works, this doesn't, you know, this makes a big difference. This, you know, didn't make a big difference or it hurt when we tried it, you know, but uh, you know, it, it really is, you know, the, the first one is uh, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like people in collaboration over process in the agile manifesto. And that's, that's really, you know, it's really important because, if you have a process, but you're not communicating well, then you are going to fail.
0: I, I think you hit you hit on a really important piece of getting, you know, having a successful project there with regards to sort of the, the, whether or not you're using agile. And I'm curious because I've been in some situations where our team workflow is not necessarily the same as the client's workflow. And we've had to adjust accordingly. For instance, We may not necessarily be doing the scrum practice the way that they're doing it or, you know, having two-week sprints. But because the client wants deliverables in those increments, then we've had to sort of accommodate that. And I'm curious how you've dealt with that sometimes, particularly when it really flies in the face of, say, for instance, have you ever encountered a situation where you're doing agile type Practices and someone's still on waterfall as far as our client. I don't know if that's a, if that's still a thing.
1: Yes and no. I mean everybody's kind of in their own place and they value their own things in a, in a particular way. Um, one thing that I found that really helps is if you can get the project owner to be part of the team. You know, so they're not necessarily you know they don't get a vote on like estimations and things, but uh, essentially they come in and they are able to tell you what they need. and and why they care, and what's important about it. And then, if you can convince them to trust you, and, and that's the other bit, right, is the trust that goes between the two groups. They trust you to deliver what they've asked for, or tell them why you can't deliver what they've asked for. So, if they're saying, you know, I need this, and I need this in this time frame, you can tell them yes, no, or you know, whatever, and then tell them why, and help them figure out how to get as close to what they want as possible. And you involve them as though they're part of the team and part of the decision-making process. So instead of them delegating to you, they're actually collaborating with you. It makes a huge, huge difference. Um, Yeah,
0: I would definitely say that's the sea change that I saw when switching from some of the more traditional waterfall development I was doing before I got into mobile and then transitioning into Agile is the fact that the project manager was someone from product or someone from the client company and we did have that relationship where there was the trust and also that understanding because of the collaborative nature we're getting clearer idea of what you, what it is that's needed and so we're able to constantly iterate on that because if you just get a block of requirements and you're shipped off to just go build it There are a lot of things that can happen between the time you start and the time you deliver something that could cause you to deliver the wrong thing. But having someone who's invested and having that trust, I mean, I've had experiences prior to that where someone would sell a feature and just come back to us and go, oh, I sold this last week. Can you guys build it? And we go, "Okay, thanks a lot. You're not really working with us. Whereas with that, with someone who's a part of your team, even though they do have, you know, they have priorities and and things like that outside of of the product development, as it were, you still have that trust and you're able to depend on them and they can depend on you. And you, I think you have a clearer goal and it's more transparent and and it definitely lends to more successful projects.
1: Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is, is that when they come to you with that, hey, I just sold this feature, can you build it? You know, that, that's not collaboration. That's them assuming that you are going to work for them. Yes. And it just never works out well. Well, I can't say never, but it doesn't usually work
0: out well. Well, if you flip that on a or too, and you have that trust, even as a team, you're willing to say, well, we understand that sometimes things change coming from outside. But yeah. they know it's not you as, as the product manager and you're willing to in a lot of times like okay we're in this together we know that our orders change we'll band together to get that thing done as best we can versus yeah. having an adversarial relationship it's like why do you guys keep changing these requirements
1: right and so then what happens is it's it's a collaboration thing and so then instead of saying hey I just sold this feature blah 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 it's hey, I was talking to this customer and they want this feature. How does that impact things? Absolutely. And so then you start having the collaborative sessions where you figure out whether or not it's possible or what would make it possible.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how just that changes that conversation. We can take a slightly different angle on how we view things and that perspective it does so much to determine what kind of outcomes and even how we how we get there. Yep.
1: So one other thing that I want to bring up, uh, harking back a little bit to onboarding is, and and you mentioned this before the show, that you've worked for places where they need more work done so they hire more people. And uh, I don't know if you've read the Mythical Man Month.
0: Oh, yes. It (laughs) It was required reading in my CS program.
1: Yeah, same. So they just don't get that. So what they're thinking is, I need to get this done by the end of the month. And so, if I hire ten more programmers, then I, you know, then I'll get ten times the work done.
0: Yes, you know, before the
1: end of the month, right? And yeah. the analogy I always hear made, and you know, it makes me chuckle a little bit, is uh, you know, nine women can't have a baby in one month. Absolutely, right? I've actually used that
0: in response to someone saying, "Oh, we'll just bring in more devs." I'm like, mm, don't think that's gonna work. I mean, if
1: if you're if you're working toward a deadline that's six months down the road or or something, and it takes you a month to onboard somebody. like to really get them contributing, that may work out. But doing it the other way, just by the time they're up to speed, you've already missed your deadline.
0: Pretty much. And one of the things that Brooks talks about in that book too is just like as you're adding these other communication points, these nodes or people, um, you are now, you have that many more points of failure, that many more points of breakdown, and you, you really do have to be mindful. As you say, it's not you can't do it. But you really have to be aware. So I'm a stickler about growing teams and how you do it, because I was a part of a team that started out with three or four devs and grew to 12 mobile devs. Oh, wow. Very quickly. And the types of developers that we were bringing on, I wanted to make sure that we knew what we were getting into, because I know higher up there's a different mindset it's like if we throw resources at it and these resources aren't its experience but they're less expensive and we just place them with the more experienced resources should be no problem right and that's not necessarily so mm-hmm. the expectations for junior developers really has to be set you really have to understand What it means when you're bringing on a less experienced developer, not just less experienced in development as a whole, but even less experienced on that particular platform, uh, that particular language. You really want to make sure you don't have the wrong expectations because that comes back and can have a negative effect on that person's place in the team. When you're evaluating them, it can have a negative impact on how other teammates view that person and how that person views their experience.
1: Yep. The other thing that I find is really interesting with a lot of this is just, you know, and you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about the team size and adding more nodes of communication, more people to the team is that I found that most teams have an optimal size Mm -hmm. and it's not, it's not the same for every team. And so some teams really gel well, you know, the eight guys or eight girls or eight whoever on the team, you know, or you've got, other teams I've seen that had up to like, you know, 15 or 20 people. And I don't know how they made that work, but <laughs> they seem to make it work. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the teams that I've worked on, you know, the ideal size was about four or five. And then what you wound up doing is you could have another team of about four or five working on a different aspect of the product and just make sure that the inter team communication worked well. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to to look at that and go. We need more devs, and so you just dump a whole bunch
0: in there. I agree. I think, and and it's funny you said that four or five because that's exactly the number I had in my head. I look back on all of the projects that were successful and great work experiences. And we had a great team dynamic and there were between four, maybe six, but once mm-hmm. you get to six, we typically are dividing the labor up in such a way that it's probably two teams of three, but you, you're right. If you have, if you can divide the product in such a way that it makes sense, you can be successful with larger teams, but it's, it's like the old adage about too many chefs in the kitchen. You can't really have everyone trying to make soup at the same time. It just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is, is you talked about dividing it up so that it makes sense. You have to understand that if you split it up into two teams, the weakest area is going to be the area where the two overlap. So if you have, you know, two aspects, you know, maybe the front end UI display and the back end logic and stuff you know, your weak point is going to be where the two meet because both teams have responsibility for it and neither team really has responsibility for it. And so they have to communicate really well about that boundary because if they don't, then that's
0: where your problems are going to arise. That's an excellent point. I never really thought about that. Now I'm going back through my mind on all these projects, thinking about the sticking points, and I think that's exactly where it's happened. Yep. Well, that's why you
1: have problems with, say, a mobile app and the API. Or you have a problem with, you know, on web apps, the front end and the back end. It's because, you know, they were designed to work together, but they were designed by different teams with different communication styles. And so, yeah, you just run into those problems. And so So if you're you're very aware of it, then you can have a project manager or a, a couple of project managers and maybe some team leads involved to make sure that that communication happens and is very clear so that the expectations from the front end to the back end and vice versa are very clearly codified and everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing.
0: Okay. So, and that was my next question about that. It's just like, how would you structure that? And it sounds like, like you said, the team leads communicating with each other mm-hmm. and, Making sure that, and then it's their job to sort of disseminate that and make sure the rest of their prospective teams are on board and and up to date with what's going on. That makes sense. That makes sense.
1: Again, and it's funny because it comes right back to the same thing we're talking about, where it's a failure of communication that causes the problems.
0: Indeed. So communication is is such a, I mean, it's sort of like the life of business and projects.
1: Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, have you ever worked with any of those developers? That were kind of the the toxic force on the team, or just didn't quite fit, yes, you know, or, or were kind of even just plain out and out problem developers.
0: Yes, in fact, I, I, I'm not gonna. I would never name names, but as soon as you said that, the image of the person <laughs> immediately popped into my head. Yes, it's really difficult, and it was one of those situations where this individual was the API developer, mm-hmm. so necessary point of communication, necessary person to deal with on a daily basis in order to get things done and just had a personality of, that's the one thing about understanding people that kind of can help diffuse some of that. When you understand the back story about why and personally on this one, it was just the person wanted to be a part of the mobile side and didn't get that opportunity. So they had a little bit of jealousy as it were to be working on the new shiny cheese. Oh, so it came through in the way that they communicated with the mobile team members, and it was one of those things that it, it got to a point where we really did have to stop and say, wait a minute, let's communicate civilly with each other. Let's stop, because it, it got it got a little nasty. Uh, At that point, sometimes, unfortunately, you do have to maybe bring in some higher-ups to kind of clear the air and diffuse things. I haven't had many experiences with that, thankfully. I pride myself in being able to talk to people and just in developing really good rapport outside of work so that even if we don't necessarily agree on everything, that we, we can always be civil and respectful and we can work together just to get the job done.
1: Yeah, I found that in a lot of cases, you know, if you talk to them and kind of figure out what their problem is and find ways to accommodate them, a lot of times it, it'll fix it. And so, yeah, it's really just interpersonal stuff. Anybody who thinks coding isn't a people job hasn't worked on the right teams, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you figure out pretty fast that the people matter more than the code does. You won't get anything done.
0: It really does. It really does. And people take their code personally, you know, and you have to... I had a manager once, and, you know, she was mindful of it, though. She really understood, and she would actually even approach situations like, okay, before I even just know that this might have impact on the code, just to prepare you mentally for what's going to happen, because she she understood that. She knew how, you know, you take pride in what you do, you care about it, you care about your code, you care about your work, and so you can't help but take it personally. It's not just bits.
1: Yep. So, I've worked with two different types of problem children, so to speak. Well... Three, if you count the project manager that I dealt with at one of the clients I worked with. But for the most part, some people just, you know, they're going through a tough time in life or they, they've got something, you know, they just have a bad attitude about things. If they're going through something, a lot of times a little bit of sympathy or empathy will just, it'll solve it. And then you just give them, you know, a little bit of, of space and understanding because they're dealing with something that is genuinely hard in life. But I've also worked with people that are just negative people. And honestly, after everything that that we tried to do with them, the only thing that was left to do was to let them go. And Uh, if you do everything you can to make it work and you just can't make it work, then you have to for the sake of the team, for the sake of the project, for the sake of everybody else. Because it's not fair to make everybody work there and it affects everybody. Um, So, you know, just just let them go. And I hate to say that about anybody. But ultimately, you know, it is something that has to be done. And if you're running the team, then that's what you've got to do. Or if they're not pulling their weight, doesn't matter how nice they are. You know, the team feels it. And if they're seeing somebody else skate by without delivering results, they're going to be resentful or worse. And worse being that they slack off or sabotage the project. You know, so you really have to pull in and make sure that everybody feels like they're appreciated and that, you know, that their effort is recognized. And having somebody on the team that's not doing it is going to undermine all of that.
0: Now, here's a question about that situation. What do you do when that negative person is in a managerial or higher level role? And you can't simply dismiss them or, or they can't simply be removed. We had a, had a project I worked on some years ago where we had a person like that that was a higher level management person that was directly involved in the project. And we nicknamed him the seagull because he would just swoop in, he would squawk, <laughs> and he would just leave, just, let's just say, negativity and then fly away. Uh-huh. And that was a person that we couldn't, even as a team, even as a project manager, that we couldn't do anything about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing you can do is kind of raise the concern above their heads. So I I can think of two uh, people that I've worked with that were like this. Well, one that would come in, yeah, and we use the same analogy. He would come in, crap on us, and leave. Yes. And with him, the only thing we could do was we talked to our manager, we talked to the CEO. Ultimately, there was nothing we could do. And so I think they talked to him. It didn't make any difference, you know, and so we just kind of had to deal. The other instance was a little bit different. I was actually uh, running tech support for a company out here in Utah and my boss. So I had built the the tech support team, trained them, was running the team and then they hired somebody to come in and manage me and my team, which it it made some sense because I didn't have the kind of experience that they wanted there. So anyway, so they hired this guy to come in and, and do this. By the way, I haven't, told this story to anybody and the person who is involved here will probably know who he is if he listens to the show but i don't i don't think he does so so what happened was eventually it turned out that he was lying to a lot of the people underneath me you know about what they were getting paid some of the guys went in and said hey you know we feel like we deserve more because they were kind of the original people that i had hired and, and were really kind of the key players on the team and they had got wind that some of the other people that had been hired were being paid more and he told them that they weren't. And then, you know, it turns out that the one person they were concerned about was smart enough to leave his pay stub out. And so they found mm-hmm. it and figured out that they were being lied to, you know, there were repeated issues where they would go to talk to him and he would through the window kind of wave them off mm-hmm. uh, without realizing that while he was waving them off, they could see in the reflection on the whiteboard behind him that he was playing solitaire. And so he was waving them off just to play solitaire. You know, just stuff like this, right? He wasn't a negative influence, but he wasn't a helpful influence, and nobody felt like he was part of the team, and really nobody had respect for him. And so eventually I had to go to the CEO and COO because half of my team was on the verge of quitting. And so I went to him and I said, look, here's the deal, here's what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And within two hours he was being escorted from the building. Wow. Um, You know, and so they, they took care of the problem. And problem solved, we, you know, we, we kind of ran things from there. I wound up reporting directly to the COO, who I eventually then had issues with, but that was a different story. But anyway, it's kind of what drove me into being a professional developer, actually. Because so, okay. I was in management at that point. I was on a management track, not a technical track.
0: There's a, there's one thing I, I was going to uh, say. You, you were mentioning that in that story that sort of that was communication that was taking place. It was just negative communication from that individual. Yes. You know, and it was very clear, but it was it was typically it was really bad. But it's I think about sort of that dynamic as you were transitioning into moving from a managerial role to a technical role. Have you found in a lot of projects you've either had to straddle that fence or are you able to sort of keep a toe in both pools?
1: So at this point, you know, I've, I've built up a remote team. Uh, we mostly do web applications, though if you can't tell, I'm very interested in mobile. <laughs> We've been doing this uh, <laughs> podcast for a while now. And so, yeah, I wind up straddling that. The difference is, is that um, when I report up, I'm reporting up to a client. And so I have a lot more pull with what goes on, and I can quit. And so, you know, the the situation is a little bit different. If if they're a toxic client, A, usually I'm the only person who's really dealing with it. And B, if I can't take it, then I'll just quit.
0: Now, do you weigh in the fact that, like, for instance, if you're a solo practitioner and, you know, you're doing it as a solo contract developer, it's a lot easier to make that decision To make it tougher when you have team members who are saying, oh, we've got this project. We've got work. It's like walking off of a job site and you've got, you know, a crew. Does it make yeah. it harder to do?
1: It does. It depends on how much money I have in the bank, and that kind of ebbs and flows. <laughs> so if I have more money in the bank, then I have more power to walk away, right? Because I can take these guys and I can say, hey, look on, work on this project for me for a while until I find something else. Yeah. Or a lot of times I can just move them off onto another project that I'm working for somebody else. And, you know, make it it all uh, smooth out. So, you know, I'm still a little bit new at this, but for the most part, you know, it's there. And the the other nice thing there is with them, the buck stops with me. And so it saves a lot of the hassle there. And if somebody doesn't fit, they're not working, they're whatever, they're contractors, and I really can just let them go. Um, Which is a a lot more freedom than you usually have with an employee-employer situation. But it is tricky. I mean, sometimes, you know, you don't want to let people go. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy that has to let people go. It kind of ruins my day, even if they deserve it. But at the same time, I have to look out for everybody else. I have to look out for my clients, and I have to look out for my other contractors. And so if it's not going to work out, then it's not going to work out. And the other thing is, is that in a lot of cases, if they don't fit well with me, there's probably somewhere else where they will fit. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally happy to help them find that. Oh, okay. And okay. so, and, and that's really, I, I think that's a good way to approach it, too, is, hey, look, it seems like you don't really fit in with this particular uh, circumstance, but, you know, I think, you know, I have these other friends here that you can go talk to, and, you know, I think they have something that will fit you better.
0: You know, that's an important point, too. I wanted to address from the the person who's being let go standpoint, you know, it's really easy to feel a lot of emotions if you've ever been in that situation and it hasn't personally happened to me although I've thought several times that it might in my uh, career that sometimes it's just about fit and it really I really don't like that it's not me, it's you. (laughs) But sometimes it really is about fit. Maybe as we're saying at the outset of the show, everyone's not cut out for remote work and everybody's necessarily the right fit for a particular team on a particular project (laughs) and it can work out better. So I would say to anyone, you know, don't be discouraged and think that you're not good at what you do. Maybe it's just not, you're, you're just not the right fit for that particular team, that particular project. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. So I've I've dealt with the one kind where people are negative or I I don't think that the one guy at that particular job was particularly deliberately negative or down on people. He just thought he was higher up than them and that he could do what he wanted and didn't see the impact of what he was doing. But the other toxic type, they're less toxic and they're more just not helpful, are kind of the rock star developers. And what I mean is, you know, they don't think they're higher and mightier than everyone else. Some of them do. But for the most part, they just really aren't good at communicating at all. And so what they want is they want to come in. They want you to hand them a list of features to build. They want to build it all by themselves and then go home and play with whatever they do at home.
0: Yeah, that one's a little more difficult because, you know, people say, you know, we want rock stars and ninjas. And then you just end up with like, you know broken bodies and broken guitars all over the place. Mm -hmm. And if you get to meet those people, it's not a situation where you uh, go back to what I was saying earlier. You really have to be aware of who you're bringing on and what you're looking for in a team dynamic. If you want that kind of developer, if you want to bring on a rock star or someone, you can just go and work on an Island and just say, okay, we don't need you to communicate with us constantly. Just get this thing done. That's fine. If that's what you're looking for. But if you're expecting someone to really be a team player and to be a communicator or even more so to be a, a leader for maybe less experienced devs or something like that, you really need to be mindful before you bring on that type of personality because that person's not going to want to do any of those things.
1: Yep, and the other thing is is that it doesn't matter how talented they are. If they can't play well on the team and that's what you need, it doesn't matter how talented they are. They could be the best programmer in the world. They never write bugs, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, I mean, most of the time, your application is complicated enough to where you have some parts that have to communicate with other parts, and that means that the developers working on Part A need to be able to communicate with the developer working on Part B. And if if he's a terrific developer but will not communicate, then you are hampering the entire effort, and he'll probably be more of a hurt than a help.
0: Absolutely. I mean, in... Even if you have sort of like a healthy ego and your confidence in your skills and all these things, if you don't subscribe to the idea that the project is the thing that's greater than than you, the team is more important than the individual, it's not gonna work out. As you yep. say, I mean you just everybody has to buy into that and you see it on all kinds of teams. And I've managed to get through almost the entire show without sports analogy, but um, <laughs> if you got a guy who won't pull block, you know, it just like, it just, you can't do certain things. You can't get things done. Sometimes you've got to be the guy to go in front. And I say guy, but I know I mean, I, mean, I absolutely mean male or female. Yeah. You've got to be able sometimes to go and do things so that your team members can succeed, you know? Yep. And That's not always the glamour work. Sometimes that's stuff that nobody wants to do, right? And you say, oh, I'm willing to do that because it's important that that thing get done.
1: Yep. It's like having Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal on the same team, right? (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, You know, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, I remember, I don't even remember what year it was, but the Lakers, they had four or five star players. I think they made the playoffs. But I think they were out, like, the first round of playoffs because they couldn't play as a team.
0: Yeah, they but, tried to buy, like, a bunch of superstars. It's kind of like, like yeah. you said. It's like they went out and tried to get a bunch of ninjas and rock stars, and that doesn't make a cohesive team. It's like you can get rock stars don't make a good band. Yeah. You know, they can't play together. And that's exactly what happened that year. So you really do have to get a good mix. I think you it's important to make sure that you have certain there are certain developers are just like, you know what, I don't mind doing what we would consider grunt work. I like that stuff. You know, I don't mind refactoring code. I don't have to work on new shiny stuff all the time. I don't mind working on bugs. You know, they live to fix bugs, you know, Um, or some people's like, I don't mind helping to train up junior developers. You know, I want to get involved. And if you have a good mix of those players and it works for your organization, I think you can be very, very successful uh, in building products.
1: Yep. So one other thing I want to ask you about, um, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, is hiring junior developers. So it seems like everybody out there is like, we need more senior devs. And they, there just aren't any. So, what are your options? Well, you've got to hire somebody with less experience. How does that affect the dynamic of the team?
0: Okay, so this is where I tie it back to a couple of things that we've already talked to before because I've actually had this happen. There were senior members on the team who just did not want to work with junior developers. They didn't feel like it was their job, they didn't feel like it was their, their their point in life. They've got their own career. Everybody's got their reasons, as it were, right? And so it becomes it can become really difficult if the if there's not that buy-in. And you have to make sure that even if you have individual members who may not be so keen on it or maybe just not good at it, that you still place junior members in the right positions. That's the other thing. You want to put people in positions where they can succeed. Mm -hmm. You don't want to ask too much of them too early. I've seen expectations rise a little too fast, particularly if there is a junior developer who picks things up very quickly, then they become the norm for the other junior developers. And that's not really fair. It's like saying, you know, a kid going through a growth spurt. It's like, well, now we expect everybody else to be this tall at this age. It's like, no, that's not how it happens. You really do have to have uh, expectations that are realistic for that individual and ongoing. What are your practices to help develop and nurture that career? Of that person to make them better, because to me, when you're one of the benefits that you can have of bringing on junior developers and growing them is that they are the ones that will be with you a long time. They are the ones who can have that history and know the product. It may be difficult a lot of times, particularly in this environment, to keep senior developers. They may be off to the next big thing. But there's – and that loyalty, though, for juniors who – you've you've established that relationship and you have that with them over a longer period of time can be quite beneficial, not to mention the cost benefits um, that can exist there as well.
1: Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting, too, is uh, in my experience, there are – how do I put this? Because I I don't want to put anybody down, but I found that there are two types of developers. There are the developers that just want a job. And they're the developers that are go getters that'll go out and learn it and get it and you know work hard and, and blah 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 right and sure everybody picks things up at a different pace and you have to be able to to take care of that but at the same time I, I really want the go getters I want the go getters as my seniors and I want the go getters as my juniors and so I really try and evaluate people based on that you know are they going to go and go out of their way to figure out how to solve the problems I hand to them you know if they're hard and are they going to go out of their way to just nail it on the things that they're good at you know because those are the people that really make the difference i've worked with the people that they show up they want a paycheck you know and they're just they're not fun to work with
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, I guess I should be a little more clear with that too. I am not a proponent of paycheck players. I just don't think those people belong in an organization at all. I just, yeah. I'm talking more of the dynamics. I'm assuming the drive. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying the aptitude varies. You right. Know, for people True. who have the desire. And uh, another sports analogy. I'm really sorry, but this one is so apropos. It's the basketball team at Kentucky. <laughs> okay, this is in college basketball. You know, they have this one and done rule where you you know you can't go to the pros immediately anymore. You got to go spend a year. And that program is littered with those kids, right? You know, okay. uh, the coach will grab kids that are, are you know they play for a year, but you know they had potential pro level talent even before. And if you are go getters, are going to continually want to go get. You know, and I want to continue to get with you. So you have to be mindful of that when you're building your team and it can still work with your team dynamic. And that is you may have a higher amount of uh, turnover, but you can you can still make that work. Right. You know, you can have an organization. I know plenty of corporations in Atlanta, particularly that, you know, they hire a lot of of developers and they're high turnover rates, some because they're just toxic, some because they tend to bring in the people that want to work on a project or a product. And then after a while, they, they just want to work on something different. They want to be challenged by a new project. They want to be in a new domain. And so I think you can make that work if you understand that dynamic and you prepare for how you bring in, how you have these people work and in what roles. So one of the things that you don't lose is essential uh, knowledge. The body of knowledge doesn't walk out of the door just because someone with knowledge happens to walk out of the door.
1: Right. So one other thing that, that I want to ask you about this, and I'm not sure if there's a good answer for this. I think it varies from team to team and from you know junior and senior to junior and senior. But how many senior devs do you feel like you should have per junior? What ratio do you think makes sense if you're building a team and hiring juniors onto the team?
0: Okay, so the way that we had done it in the past was literally—I'm just my Star Wars geekiness is coming out—is the Sith rule always two? There are <laughs> and so, master and apprentice, and that's how we've typically structured it. It doesn't have to stay that way, and you don't have to adhere to that one. But I find that it really works well because it allows you to to solve two problems. One, you have that sort of Uh, senior junior dynamic going on where this, this, the senior is imparting information on the junior. The junior is asking good questions and is engaged and challenging the senior because that's the great thing about working with a junior dev is you get challenged and you have to, when you have to explain something, you really do have to think about it and Mm. you can see things from a different perspective. The other part of that too is, is part of the onboarding process of the culture. You're getting someone who's familiar with the culture. And bringing someone on and helping, indo- you know, I really, you want to say indoctrinate, but you know, bring them, get them familiar with how things are done. Yep. So, not just as a career, technically proficient, but company culturally proficient. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it works. Once you get to a certain level, though, um, you can switch it up. I mean, I've seen it work really well. Where at a certain point, we want we let what I would consider they may they're more experienced juniors pair a couple of them together and just have a little bit of oversight from a more senior developer and let them go off and start to spread their wings a bit. And that frees the senior up to do some more engaging things as well, to go a little bit deeper on some in some areas and allowing those juniors to grow because you, you don't want to keep it permanently or even for too long where it's just kind of like this, I'm feeding this person's this information or I'm, I'm guiding them along. You want to get them up to speed and then start to give them Work That allows them to really stretch out and move forward. But just with that sort of eye on things to make sure that we the code quality doesn't shift project schedules don't slip and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. Right.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. And I, I do like the, you know, kind of the mentoring pairing idea.
0: Yeah, I'm big on pairing. And I think that, you know, I was going to ask a question about sort of success, gaining more leeway with particularly with clients a lot of times or even an organization that's not really keen on remote work. So I was part of a company that was transitioning to that. And there was a lot of pushback because, you know, there was this idea that we can't see it not know what's going on. And just like bringing on juniors and getting them up to speed and getting small wins, a remote team or a, uh, building a rapport with a new client, getting small wins. All of these things can build confidence in the work that the team does mm-hmm. and allow you more latitude to do your best work. Yeah, definitely.
1: And, and I think really what it comes down to with being comfortable with remote teams is that you really do have to see the results. And once you're seeing results from them that you like, then it doesn't matter that you don't see what's inside the box or under the covers because, you know, they're cranking out enough value to where you're happy with the return on investment
0: you're making with your money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't care how the hot dogs are made. I just want hot dogs.
1: Yep. (laughs) And so, and that builds trust and that's really what it boils down to. I tell a lot of prospects when I talk to them, it's like, look, here's the deal. You're not technically savvy you could Mm -hmm. learn that but it would take you too long so ultimately what it comes down to is do you trust me to do what i say i'll do and and that's really what it boils down to for a lot of management folks is you know do you trust the team to deliver what they said they would and if they do are you happy with the return on investment in other words are you happy with the value exchange that you got and if both of those are true then it doesn't matter
0: such a good point, too, keeping that at the forefront of that conversation, too, revisiting that. And like you say, having those successes and delivering results, because the results really trump everything else yep. at the end of the day.
1: Yep, it's all a value exchange. But anyway, we should probably get to the picks, because I need to prep for the next show. So do you have some
0: uh, picks you want to share with us? I do. Okay, so I just uh, used Kickstarter for the first time, and I Kickstarted an Edison from Robotics uh, project for inventors. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an affordable Programmable Robot, uh, backed by, by uh, it's a project by Microbrick out of Australia, and it looks really, really fun. I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on it. I have some younger cousins that I want to get involved in robotics and, and, and get excited about programming, so this is going to be one of the ways that I do that. So I'm going to post a link for the Kickstarter project. Along with that, um, there's another organization that I just volunteered for. Wanted to get involved with. I met one of the members at a conference recently, and I'm super excited about it for the same reason. It's Black Girls Code, and uh, they have different chapters, and they have hackathons, and, and it's you know I really think it's a it's a great thing to do to get uh, young people excited about uh, technology. So those are my two picks this week.
1: Awesome, great picks. I've talked to a few girls or a few folks from Black Girls Code, and. They do awesome work, so I just I can't say enough nice things about them because they just rock.
0: I'm looking forward to the first one here in Raleigh that I can participate in.
1: Yeah, I haven't actually been to an event, but it sounds like they really have the right idea about things. So, so my picks, I'm going to pick a few books. Um, we talked a lot about people being go-getters, and I have to say that uh, there are a few books out there that really kind of ring this in for me. Uh the first one is called The Go-Getter. It's actually it's a fictional story, you know, it's set, you know, several years ago, but it is just tremendous in really highlighting what it means to be a go-getter. I listened to it on Audible and the audiobook is like an hour long. Totally worth it. Totally totally worth it. The second book that I'm going to pick is about an hour and a half long on Audible. I don't know how many pages it is because I didn't read it either. I just listened to it. It's called QBQ, the question behind the question. Mm. And it talks about personal responsibility. And so it basically is training on how to ask the right question. So instead of why is this happening to me? Or, you know, why does Alondo always push with broken tests? You know, (laughs) instead what it, it's, what can I do? Or how can I fix? Or how can I solve? You know, and so it's those kinds of questions. And so, you know, it's, you know, how can I and this really isn't a great QBQ question either, asking how can I help Alanda realize why the tests are important to have them pass. But at the same time, you know, at least then you're taking some responsibility to say, you know, how can I make the situation better? How can I solve the problem? Maybe a better question is, you know, how can I make test coverage or a not broken build more important? And so, you know, then you start thinking about, okay, well I could put the CI results up somewhere where they're visible to the entire team. Or I can do this or I can do that. You know, I can I can set up a CI server. You know, so you're starting to take responsibility for what you can control to make things better. You know, I can set up the CI machine to send out emails when somebody breaks the build. You know, just stuff like that. And so instead of being frustrated because somebody isn't participating in the way you want, you are taking responsibility and finding ways to make the situation better.
0: That's actually excellent. I actually think that might be my afternoon listening. <laughs>
1: So good. Another one that I liked, I have to say that this one is kind of really hokey. It's based on a metaphor, and they took the metaphor just a little too far. But I like the underlying premise, and so I'm going to pick it anyway. It's called Rhinoceros Success. I don't remember who the author is for that either. It's about an hour long, hour, hour and a half long on Audible as well. I listened to all three of these in the same day. Okay. Anyway, and I got them off of Dave Ramsey's uh, um, required reading list for his employees, and I just... I was blown away. Anyway, so they take the metaphor a little bit too far, but the underlying premise is that if you want something, that you should focus on it and charge it down like a rhino. And if you try and charge down too many things, then you're not going to catch any of them. But if you focus and you charge with everything you have, then you should be able to get what you want. And, you know, again, it just, you know, the, the underlying principle was really, I think it was it's really important for people to understand, but... Like I said, you know, you you have to get over a little bit of the cheesy animal uh, metaphor stuff. So uh, I'm going to pick those books. Hopefully people can go out and pick those up and, you know, make your situations better wherever you work. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, so those are my picks. Yeah, I don't think we have any announcements, so uh, we'll just catch everybody next week. This episode is brought to you by Code School. Code School offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to iFreakshow.com/slash CodeSchool. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakshow.com slash forum.